0: everybody. Welcome to another Haas Talks Boss. I'm the Haas, Matt Yankovic. I'm here with Emily Umir. Hi, Emily. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. uh, No problem. So, Emily, you actually have your own consulting company that is focused on positioning open-source projects, more specifically, cloud-native open-source projects.
1: Yeah, and actually, to be fair, I generally work with what I call open-source startups. Or cloud native startups, so uh, companies that are looking to monetize an open source project. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. And or using, I, think I should, I should rephrase this. They're using open source as part of their business strategy. Um, because uh-huh. there's a chicken and egg. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you start with the open source project, and then you want to monetize that. Sometimes you, ha- you want to start a company, and then a Part of that strategy is having an open source project. Um, There are a lot of different ways uh, that that you can approach it. So, open source startup or open source business. I think open source startup is usually like how I would phrase the type of company that I generally work with.
0: So, before I get into your background, because I'm I'm curious how you got involved in this. Um, I I I am curious. You bring up an interesting point. Um, It seems that there's a lot of businesses out there who jump onto open source because of the valuation that they see these other companies get or like oh oh you know in order to to become big and a unicorn i need to be open source so let's do that and it's almost more of a uh you know plugged into their business side than it is actual their core business it's more like this is how we're gonna make money it's part of our go-to-market strategy
1: yeah. I mean, I've even talked to founders that, were, that are like, if I'm going to have a company in the, the cloud native space, I'm, I feel like having an open source component is table stakes. Like, I just don't feel like it's feasible to have a, a completely closed source company. Uh, whether or not that's true, I think is debatable because uh, I can point to fairly successful closed source, undeniably cloud native companies. Anyway, Uh, there there are, there are several, right? Yes, Um, but I do, I do think that, that, that's both, that's also psychological. I think there are people who start from this point of, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, I don't want to be up on a stage talking about my closed source project. Like, I feel like I'd get heckled or something like that. And that's, that's legitimate. Not but in, that you would get heckled. I don't think that actually happens. But so it's,
0: really it, yeah. Well, so it's interesting because nowadays I think that um when you talk about cloud native, um a lot of people running SaaS don't have that same kind of like negative connotation around like being closed source because you you it's a, it's a, it's a service, right? It's a software as a service, so you wouldn't necessarily open source that, right? And so you see a lot of SaaS uh, products out there in the space, and they are proprietary, um, but there is no installation or open source component to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, like if it's completely SaaS, actually, I think of SaaS as like one of the open source business models. So, this, the SaaS, this, you have your open source, and then you have like the SaaS version of the open source, um, which in some cases is actually not. I mean the 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 pitch is always like we take the open source project and we run it for you and we do everything so you don't have to do anything. Um, the truth is that in not every situation is the SaaS product actually like identical to the open source project. Um, they just achieve the same thing. Mm. If that makes sense, it's kind of yeah, enhanced, yeah, yeah, yeah. But It's not like the in every situation it's it's actually the SaaS is actually. You know ninety five percent the open source project. sometimes it's fifty, sometimes it's twenty.
0: Yeah, no, I mean that that makes sense. So back to how
1: did you get into this space? Right? Yeah, this is the fun, the fun story. Um, I used to be a journalist, and uh, the the route that I took into the open source um, ecosystem was as a technology journalist and writing about technology. In fact, my, my first entry into technology was writing about IoT, um, IoT applications in um, like smart city applications. So that was the, the, the first stepping stone. Um, but then I, I started to write about uh, technology more broadly. Then I started to focus in on writing about Cloud Native. Um, and then I um, also started to work for companies doing content marketing. And uh, then from that, sort of have morphed more into doing messaging and positioning um, because what I saw was that I would get hired to do some sort of content marketing and find out that, you know, ask questions and realize that they had no idea um, how they were supposed to talk about the product. Basically, they had like problems that I was not going to solve with content marketing. And not only that, that we're going to make my job like terrible as as a content marketer. So it just like pervasive in the industry was an un- inability to talk about their their product or their open source project, and especially how they relate to each other in a way that hmm. makes sense, like to anybody. And um, so I, I I really think that that's like the the larger need than in, in the industry is. Just being able to make sense to, to people.
0: Um, so, is that getting back to maybe, you know, and, and for those who are listening who might not understand the difference between positioning and marketing and you know, messaging, um, maybe if you have an example that could help us, you know, like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So, positioning is more fundamental than messaging, um, but they are very related. Um, positioning is also more fundamental than. Um, Marketing. Oh, I want to say like I understand marketing is a bad word in the open source ecosystem. Um, I think that that's actually um, that's unfortunate. People shouldn't view marketing as as a bad word. Um, And in fact, if you have a pure open source project and you have no monetization goals, this is just an open source project. You still need to do marketing because the other way to say marketing is telling people that your thing exists. And if you don't do that. Um, nobody will ever find out that it exists. So anyway. um, (laughs) Yeah, if
0: you build it, isn't the guarantee that they will come?
1: Exactly, exactly. So, um, and I would say, uh, you know, positioning is all about uh, figuring out, you know, when you're telling people that your project exists, uh, what are you telling them? And then also who are you telling? Uh, That's sort of the two components is uh, figuring out like what, what your product or what your project is Right. Is this an observability platform or is it actually a CI tool? Um, It seems very strange, but you could conceivably have the same tool uh, that could have some aspects related to operations and observability and some aspects related to um, CI. And. Maybe you know in that situation. Actually, I'm I'm thinking of a concrete example. In the, this this situation, there it was neither. Like neither of those options were the best way to describe it, but they were both potentially accurate um, because they both the, this the same tool had some things that were re- related um, to CI and CD, and some things that were re- related to operations and observability. So. Um, you want to figure out the, the best market, the, the way that it's generally described as a market category. Um, CI platform or CI tool is a market category. Um, and that's like very well understood. Uh, there's a lot of things, you know, observability is another like market category, for example. Um, and you want to put your thing, whether it is a commercial project or a pay or, or an open source project, uh, you want to put it in the right category so that okay. people make the right assumptions about it. Um, uh, so uh, I, I work, my, my business is all about like assumptions and excluding people. I uh, just wanted to say that. Um, because <laughs> that that's, what, okay. that's, that's what positioning is all about. Actually, it's all about controlling assumptions that people make and excluding the right people. And so you want people to be able to self-select in and self-select out. Um, very easily. And so, if
0: you were if you were developing, you mentioned observability, a tool for observability. Um, it could have, you know, key components that integrate into your CI/CD pipeline. Yep. But if the tool isn't designed for that, it's really designed for the overall observability. You know, you want to make it very clear that this is first and foremost designed for that observability market, and it's really for. Could be SREs, or it could be dev people, or it could be business people who want to know what's going on in the pipe. But is it? It's it's doing the who and the what, right?
1: Yeah. So, but here's where things get interesting. Um, what you actually, in order to do positioning right, you have to actually have to let go of what it was designed for, because here's what can happen. Um, you set out to design the best um, observability platform ever. And you integrate it with all these things, and you, um, you know, one one of the things that that you think is really important for an observability platform is that um, you it's set up during the, the at, at the deployment phase, so it has this really tight integration into your CI/CD pipeline, and um, as a result, you know, it's really tightly integrated. It makes sure that all of your other observability tools are like automatically set up correctly at the deployment phase. But you think of this as like the problem you're solving is related to observability. Um, But it, it could turn out that the thing that you end up creating is actually not an observability tool. And that's not how other people think about it. They may think of it as a deployment tool because this, one of the, the features is that it sets all of your uh, observability, all of your other observability tools up automatically. So they might think of this as actually a, a deployment or a delivery tool. Um, and you had never thought of it as that. You had thought about this tool that you're setting up, you're, you're creating, and it's for SREs. And then you take a step back, you talk to the, to the people who are actually using it, and it turns out none of them are SREs. Or Or maybe it turns out like you know thirty percent are sres and seventy percent are are somebody else. and it turns out that when they talk about your your tool, they're not even using the word observability and or you know whatever it is. so that that's the challenge is that it's not about how you' designed or what you designed your your product or your project um, to be but actually about what it ends up achieving in the real world and how other people perceive it. Uh, that's, the, that's the other key, is that it, it's also about how other people perceive it.
0: And I would imagine that's a very difficult um, for a lot of companies and a lot of projects because a lot of open source founders and uh, contributors are very passionate about a certain space. And to learn that if they're passionate about A, but their product isn't being used for A, that it's really being used for B, and they're like, oh, I don't even care about B." Um, yeah. I would imagine that creates a bit of frustration.
1: It can be really challenging for for companies. Um, yeah, I was uh, talking with with somebody, and um, they have a, a open source project and a related product that is related to container management. I'll, I'll just okay. I'll use fa- fairly broad terms, so we can't like pin down who this is. Um, but, uh, they were getting a lot of interest from, um, companies that have edge devices and, um, they never intended this to be a tool that had anything to do with edge. They were, they, it is not, it it was not designed with the intention that this would be for like, you know, deployments of a hundred thousand edge devices. Um, but they have a bunch of people who are interested in that and, they're really hesitant like I, do i think that that's where they should go yes i think it's actually like almost obvious almost like staring them in the face that that they need to to focus on this like enterprise edge deployment use case of of both the open source and the the paid product um but that's that's hard because it's a pivot and it you know particularly when you're talking about a company it involves like buy in from the board and the investors and um buy in from the whole team uh, it's it's easier if you're you know if you're just a scrappy open source project you can make that pivot um you know logistically it's easier but psychologically it's not necessarily easier because you're like um i, I didn't i didn't mean for this to be used in this way um you know what's going on <laughs> so uh, yeah it's it's hard
0: so a lot of this, you know, when you, when you're talking about position where you're helping companies do is uncover what their users perceive their product or the project to, to, to be good at where it fits in and, um, where they might be able to start to accelerate their business a bit by focusing more on the things that are already naturally occurring.
1: Yep. Exactly. The, the way I think about it is like, how do you uncover what, you know, what your, but what your thing, um, because really a lot of the things I'm talking about, they apply equally to to projects and products. Um, but I will talk about some specifics of, of related to open source later. Um, but what does your thing already naturally do better than any other option? And sometimes it's not the thing you, you originally thought of. But I think that's
0: where, and I've talked to a lot of founders of companies, and um, it's interesting because you see... They have a very clear vision. And sometimes that vision doesn't match the reality. Yes. Right. And I think that's where there's always a challenge, right? Because I'm going to go build the best X, and you turned out building the best Y. Yep. That's not a bad thing. So um, it's just a different
1: is, here's what I have, what I have to say about this this actually all comes down to goals. So, um, I was talking with a um, guy, the, the founder of Sneak, a, a while ago. And he was talking about how there was a moment at Sneak where they wondered, you know, how, did we actually build Y instead of X? And it looked like it would be better, potentially, for their bi- business to, to pivot a little bit. And they did not. And there were two reasons for that reason number 1 was that they had a very like a vision that was r- related to almost like a mission about incorporating security into development and okay. two um they were already financially secure so from a financial perspective it it's not going to say it didn't matter but it was not going to be like they you know they he'd already had a successful startup and it, he basically the way that he said it was like my priority was achieving this mission, not having a successful business. The mission was more important than the successful business. If that's the case, then it makes sense to keep like keep pushing on your business or on your mission. Sorry, it makes makes sense. You know, if it's really mission driven, and I can definitely see that. Like when we're talking about something like security, um, I think that that can can make sense. If, on the other hand, um, what's really important to you is that this business is successful, you know, you, you don't want to ignore signs like that. Um, same, you know, if if and when I say ignore, like they did not ignore the signs. They looked at the signs, said, "We, you know, we see, we understand what what this could potentially mean, and we've decided that we are not going to act on it." Which is actually different from ignoring it. Ignoring is never a
0: good right. idea. But I mean, it gives you the opportunity to make changes to your own products or, you know, setup to maybe reinforce what your vision or your mission is. Yep. But I think that this gets back to another blog you wrote on why an amazing open source project doesn't always equal an amazing company, right? <laughs> um, oh, exactly. and, I, and I think that, you know, this is where your vision might not necessarily translate into dollars in some cases.
1: Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, the thing that I always like to say to founders is uh, you have to understand that a lot of times an open source user is just, they're just not the same profile as a commercial purchaser. And that's okay. I mean, that, that's just, it's just how it is. It's okay. It's how open source works. Um, I don't think an open source project should ever be like your, your lead funnel for your, your commercial product. Um, do I think an open source project could be like, um, you know, marketing or something? Sure, maybe. But it's, you know, it's about be having awareness uh, that, that your company exists. Um, I think viewing an open source project as a lead funnel is um, not effective. And I think it alienates the open source community. Um, and I, I also, I, you know, it just doesn't work because the the fundamental characteristics of the the open source users... Um, generally don't have a a huge overlap with the commercial, commercial purchaser. So what kind of process or what
0: kind of things, you know, if you're looking to figure out your positioning and or validate what you think it already is, what sort of things should you look at? Where, where should you kind of poke around?
1: Yeah. So, um, the first step is always uh, figuring out who loves you the most. So, if you have an open source project, um, I'm going to go ahead and talk about open source projects here. But if you have an open source project, um, so first uh, you want to figure out what success looks like to you. If you have an open source project, just because success can have different meanings in an open source context. Um, You know, like why do you have this open source project in the first place? Um, Like, for example, Facebook uses open source projects for for uh, recruiting. Right. If that's why you use an open source project, why you have your, your open source project, you have certain goals in mind um, and you have to be aware of that. That's different goals than if you um, are just, you know, some person who's doing this for fun um, or if you are a company that's hoping to, you know, build a business that's related to, to open source in some way. Um, so figure out what success looks like and, and why you're doing this in the first place. And then um, you want to identify who are the people you wish you had more of. So um, if you want you know, more code contributors, look at your code contributors and think, who, who are the, the contributors who are really awesome and who I wish I could clone and um, talk to some of them. But you want to... And this goes the same. So if you have a paid product, um, figure out who the customers who are really awesome are, the customers who are like super excited and the customers who just like do not care about all of your weaknesses, um, you have some weaknesses, whether it's your open source or, or paid. Like, there are some things about your product that suck. Um, some people don't care. And you want to like focus on those people. And so talk to them. You want to figure out like how do they use your, your project or your product? Um, why do they use your product or your project? Uh, what what was the moment when they decided that they were going to try this out? What what pain were they experiencing, and um, what did they want to achieve? And what words do they use to, to describe your product? Um, I I always ask a question when I do customer interviews, like if you were to describe this to a colleague, what would you say? And uh, that's you know you don't want to rely one hundred percent on that, but it's a really good input into um, how people the type of people that that you want more of, how they think about, about your thing. Uh, so then after you do that, uh, you sort of use that as like a jumping off point to then um, think about, oh, there's something I missed that's really important. Uh, what would they do if you didn't exist? And that's mm. really important, actually, because it tells you what the true comparison that they're making in their head is. So the the thing that a lot of founders also sort of get really hung up on is their competitors. And when they say competitors, they mean like, you know, some other startup that does the same thing that they do. But um, in the minds of a lot of users, the competitor is to do nothing. It's the status quo. That's a big thing. Yes and um the status quo could mean it could mean like to to achieve the same outcome we're going to hire a new person or to achieve the same outcome we're going to do manual work for 8 hours or to achieve the same outcome um you know we're <laughs> yeah for security i always make that i always say like for security like to achieve the same outcome we're going to cross our fingers and <laughs> um you know what, so what, are they, what would they actually do if you didn't exist? That's who they're really comparing you to. So if you say you're really easy to use and the alternative is crossing your fingers, people are going to be like, eh, I'll just keep crossing my fingers.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting. You, you brought up a couple of really interesting points. Um, I, I think that um, one of the things that most people don't realize is apathy or doing nothing is the biggest threat to open source companies. Right, um, because all companies. Well, yeah.
1: This is not unique about open source companies.
0: But there's a uniqueness in the open source side because when you talk about paying customers versus users, you can be a user and not a paying customer. In fact, most companies have way more users than paying customers. Uh, We did some surveys the last few years, and... Uh, they ask, you know, how willing are you to pay for enterprise features? Two-thirds are already predisposed to never pay for anything in open source, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's probably a low number. Uh, so, you know, you have this group of people who their thought process is, I don't want to necessarily pay um, right out of the box. And so when you say, oh, are they choosing your product? Are they choosing to buy the enterprise version or pay for your software as a service or your your, your platform as a service, um, and they're just saying no, um, that's just a natural thing. And, and they can choose to just self-support, choose to self-run, or choose to not use your product at all.
1: Yeah, so the, the thing that's really unique about positioning for open source uh, companies is that you do have to position against yourself. Against your you know you have to position your your paid offering and you have to position your open source project and ideally right you want them both to be successful oh, yeah. so, right you you want them both to be attracting people that are in the right place and this comes down to the the who question right and and why I say like i i ideal and exclusion and assumptions um Because you want it to be really easy for people to self-exclude, so to speak, or self-select is really the, the, the right word. Um, and this goes for people who are not appropriate for either of your, of your, um, offerings, your open source or your, your paid thing. Um, but you also want people to really easily understand which of those two things is best for them. And, you know, The way that I think about it, this is really hard for companies, um, but you don't want people who would actually be better off in open source to be paying you, just as much as you don't want people who would actually be better off with the paid thing to be just self-supporting with open source. That is a hard
0: pitch to a lot of shareholders and investors. It really is. I'm not saying I agree with you 100%, by the way. That's a hard thing to say, though. The hardest thing with any startup or any business is figuring out when to say no. Right. right? And and I think that that is potentially one of the biggest mistakes uh, startups make is they try to over correct and capture too much of the market, chase too many of the dollars. Um, You know, there's there's a lot of business books out there that talk about, you know, to be this successful unicorn or. The top company in your space, you need 7% of that market. That's it. And that's a I
1: very tiny I amount. I did hear that. figure. that's a, yeah, that's not much. Well,
0: yeah. So it, you know, it, it comes from, um, uh, you know, a series of, uh, of books on the Rockefeller methods. Uh, Bern, uh, uh, his first name's Burn. Uh, his last name's first with an H, but I will remember it after this, probably. Anyways, uh, he he talked. Uh, quite a bit about um, like IKEA. IKEA is a well-known brand, right? And they own less than 7% of the entire furniture market, but they are considered this you know, massive brand. But they focus just on people who want to build their own furniture and don't want the hassle of you know, all this other stuff so cheap. So, so they, they've kind of got their positioning down and they're focused and they're willing to, you know, this is our box we're going to dominate that box.
1: Uh, the IKEA customer is kind of like the open source customer. They're willing to put in some um, elbow grease on their own. Um, uh, you, like, right. Like the open source user. Um, but the the point of positioning actually is to take that broader market and narrow it down. So that instead, it's, like you might say, well, we have 7% of the overall furniture market, but we have, let's say... Ninety percent of the market, and I—I'm just making that up—of um, the market for you know people who have a tight budget and they don't, and they don't like to shop at the shop at thrift shops, right? Because I would imagine like that one of the competitive alternatives for IKEA is going to Goodwill, and yeah. yeah right it's gonna be similar it's gonna be a, a similar price point probably, and like honestly you'll probably get higher quality of goodwill so um ikea's positioning is people who have some people hate buying used furniture or used stuff in general so so therefore you know good looking furniture for people who um are averse to buying used and don't really care about quality i mean Right, but that's that's positioning, right? They're positioning,
0: right? And you've narrowed that down now to a a point where you can focus on you know, when you talk about marketing activities, that's where do those people exist? That's where you want to focus. You know, when you talk about new products, what does that subset want in their products? Exactly, and it's very hard.
1: And now IKEA has like a hundred percent of that market. I mean, who, where else yeah. do you go if you, if you have a, a super tight budget, but you're not going to go shop at Goodwill. Right. I mean, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, that's yeah. a low part of the market, but that, yeah, yeah. If you don't, if you just don't like to use stuff in general, you don't shop at Goodwill, garage sales either. Um, I, I like garage sales. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Right. I mean, it's fine. um, but I, I think that's where, you know, um, uh, you know, and as I talk with different executives and, you know, they, they look at the broader market yeah. and they're like, oh, we're going to capture all this market. We're going to like, you know, this is what we're going to do. And you see open source projects start as a core set of mission values. And then over time to expand their market share, they start to try to add new features, new functionality, new other things to jump. Right. You know, so, you know, hey, we're we're really. Focused on this, let's jump to the next size and the next. And they, 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 they often lose their purpose in a lot of cases. Um, and the, it's hard for them to narrow back down because it's again saying no.
1: Yeah. So, and the problem, of course, with that is that if you're trying to expand by adding new features, you can, in fact, end up serving your original target market or serving a core market worse than you did at the at the beginning and um you know i wouldn't say i, I will caution the companies you know i i say you, you totally should expand but certainly at the it's like you want to be proportionate you know if you're google like do whatever you want take take on whatever you
0: want. <laughs> yeah if you've got that much money there's yeah. a different rule book
1: yes exactly um but at the beginning you know when you have five million dollars of venture funding for example or you know, even more so if you're bootstrapped, so you have like your 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 severance pay from your last job, and uh, you're you're trying to figure out how to focus. Well, you have you have to really focus in on a very tight market um, because it's just it's just uh, otherwise you won't get any traction, and you also can't legitimately claim to to serve the needs of a super diverse group of, of customers. Um, But it is totally possible, with very limited resources, to meet the needs of a very, very specific uh, type of of customer um, or open source user, right? This applies equally, I want to say, to open source projects. Um, So if you are just one person who's developing an open source project in their spare time, and you want an open source project that's going to actually get used and that's going to develop a community, And that's going to have like a, you know, a vibrant community that's not just you. You want to focus on something really specific, um, where you know that the existing options, uh, are not serving that, that market well. And that there's, there's lots and lots of opportunities of this because for this, because again, the big guys, the big, the like Googles and AWS's and Red Hats, uh, they are just too big to go after really really tiny subsets and they're going to offer like these sort of all general purpose, all in one solutions that are not going to meet the needs of, of really specific niches. And if you as a startup can, then, you know, one, one of the questions a a lot of companies or a lot of like very early stage companies get, is like, you know, what, why why would I go with you? You know, you're going to go out of business in two years. Or, you know, it seems like a a risk, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But if you can say like, yes, you know, we might go out of business in two years. That is true. Um, But uh, we offer, you know, XYZ. And when you say XYZ, you should be talking about value or at least benefits, not like the features. But we let you do XYZ. That's really important to people who fit your very specific characteristic. And if you go to AWS, sure you can use a general purpose thing and you can spend the next two months like clicking boxes to set it up. Um, but we have this thing and it perfectly meets exactly the needs that you have, then yeah, like they're gonna say yes, they're they're gonna go for that. And they're gonna tell your friend their friends that are like fit their exact same characteristics. And guess what? If there's only a hundred of those people that exist in the world you can probably... A, they probably already know each other. B, you can meet your sales goal. I mean, if your sales goal is like 8 for this next year, or even if your sales goal is like 20 for the next year, you're actually more likely to meet it if you're in this like really, really narrow niche and you you fix something and are able to communicate that you fix that thing um, really, really well. Then if you're trying to sell 20 general purpose blah, sort of mushy things to anyone who comes. And I think
0: that's where, if you can narrow your focus, especially early on, and you build that fervent fan base within that segment, it becomes easier to have those conversations with those people on, what else can we do to help you? Yes. And that's how you can expand.
1: Yep, exactly. And, you know, you can also expand. You can expand to adjacent markets uh, you you can expand um you know to a, a, adjacent there's a lot of ways by the way that I define like characteristics. This is another thing I think people get really caught up on is they get caught up on like industry verticals and particularly in the open source space and in this space that I work in, um I actually like to focus on like characteristics of the application or of the cloud workload or whatever so is it? bound by any compliance frameworks. Is it like how sensitive is it? Right. We've talked about security, but it some like everyone talks about how they they want everything to be maximally secure. And that's that's not true. But you do have some things that are more sensitive than others. So that's a characteristic of an application. um, It could be it's written in a particular language. It could be it uses a particular that has, you know, uses particular other tools or has particular other dependencies. Um, so you want to think about characteristics of the, um, of the application. Uh, Those are really, I think, even more important than uh, thinking about characteristics of the company.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a trap we all fall into, um, is especially when you're talking about infrastructure software, right? Um, when, when you're talking about end user functionality and you've got an app that does, you know, finance stuff the finance industry is a targeted audience, yes. Right. But when you're talking about a database or you're talking about Kubernetes or you're talking about, you know, different infrastructure components, it's often a, you know, they're running the same thing. They might use different features. Yes. But you'll probably have lumps of uh, core value that certain people will get, yes. right? And, you know, in the, the case of Kubernetes, it could be they want, you know... Um, They want to eliminate human error, right? So they want to have repeated, you know, like the same all the time, right? And that, you know, making sure that they can reduce, uh, you know, human error and improve efficiencies, the big thing. And that could be a thing that is very valuable to retail and to healthcare and to banking all in the same bucket.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you do think that, so within an, an organization, there's going to be different buckets, right? If, particularly if you're talking about like a big organization. So let's say, you know, we're talking about a huge retail enterprise. They are going to have some apps that are customer facing, and they're going to have some that are not. Uh, they're going to have some that deal with, with sensitive, with personal information. They're going to have some that do not. Um, they're going to have some that if they go down, it costs them like, you know, a million dollars a second. They're gonna have some that can go down for two weeks and it's like it's kind of annoying, but it's not really a big deal. And so that's why I think it's important to really really dial in on the characteristics of the application rather than like focusing too much on the company, because you know, a customer facing application at an e commerce site versus at um, a bank, well, maybe banking is bad because that's like really high stakes. Um, (laughs) but, um, you know, a customer facing application that, that produces revenue in some way is going to be like vastly more important, regardless of what industry it's in than an internal like HR application.
0: Or yeah, a blog or a wiki or a... Yes. Yeah.
1: Or something that's customer facing, but that doesn't produce revenue. Right? So... And um, you, you want to think of that like that's actually a really good characteristic to think of, like, is this related to something that produces revenue or not?
0: OK, great. So, Emily, um, where can people find out more about what you do and maybe take a look at, you know, some of the, the articles and you, you even have your own podcast, which I was a guest on?
1: Yes. Thank you. So where, much. where can they find this? So, um, you can come to my website, which is Um, I know my last name's a little hard to spell, um, but uh, you can also look for Cloud Native Startup, which is my podcast. Um, positioning Open Source is my blog. If you just go to positioningopensource.com, that will lead you over to my website and to my, my blog. Um, let's see what else. else? I also write a column at the new stack uh, that is about entrepreneurship for engineers. Um, so you can head over to the New Stack and and find some of my work there. Um, yes, I think that that's about it. Oh, I'm I'm all well. Open, so.
0: get, well, like everybody nowadays, right? So many ways to get in touch with people. Yeah, uh, but Emily, thank you for coming, and I would encourage everybody to check out Emily's blogs and her podcast, um, especially if you're in that startup space. You're looking to maybe start a new uh, company. You're looking for some advice and uh, looking to how to accelerate maybe your open source project as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for coming in. Wow. What a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.